Good morning, everybody. So our reading this morning comes from Romans 8, 28 to 39. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, our, our loving Heavenly Father, this morning, and I pray that it would be with thanksgiving in our hearts, that we would honor you as God and give you thanks in all things, that we would fulfill the will that you have expressed to us, that we would be thankful in all circumstances. And Lord, we, we have thanksgiving for you in all circumstances because of these very great promises that we've been looking at in Romans 8, and we have very great hope because of the work you are doing among us, that you are sanctifying us, and we know that if we are being sanctified, that we have been justified and will be glorified. And so, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us this morning with this sure hope, this foundation, this anchor for our souls. Lord, we also come to you in thanksgiving, asking you for the things that we lack, knowing that you have allowed these circumstances for our good and your glory, but also knowing that you tell us that you want us to ask. And so, Lord, for those who are ill, those who are recovering, those who have lack of any sort, we want to lift those needs up to you now. And in our minds, we have individual people. But Lord, we ask as, as a body for all of these needs to be met. And Lord, we ask you for what you have promised to give us now, which is that you will transform us so that we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another, becoming more and more like Christ Jesus. For this is how your church is commanded to glorify you, to preach the gospel, and to adorn the gospel with good works. And so, Lord, we ask that you would glorify yourself through our church 
and through us as individuals. We ask that you would do this by your Spirit and through your Word applied to us, even this morning. You are our only true teacher, and we ask that you would give us understanding of your Word. For the sake of Christ, amen. Good morning. So good to see you all this morning and to worship with you, especially when we can hear people's voices singing. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but when we, when we first moved into this building, I didn't know any hymns, and uh, <laughs> we, we only worship to rock and roll music pretty much. And uh, now I just, maybe it's I'm getting old or more sanctified. I'm not sure which one it is. But now I love hymns and listening to all of our voices. We're, our passage this morning is Romans 8, 31 to 39. We've read a little bit longer because this is all one big argument. Actually, it fulfills the argument of all of the first uh, eight chapters of Romans. In Romans chapter 9, it's, it's still going to work off of the implications, but this is really the climax. And, and our passage this morning, beginning in verse 31, also begins, what then shall we say to these things? Which means that it's in response to all of these things, this rousing climax of Romans 8. The, the Romans 8 is the pinnacle of the good news. It's, it's amazing. And so Paul turns to the implications of everything that has already been said up to this point, and especially his summary in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is just this summary of the gospel. And in verses 1 to 17, he emphasized the transformation God has wrought in believers as the Holy Spirit has given them new hearts and new desires, this renewal, this sanctification process, this renovation of ourselves is what fortifies the hope of believers. Since the Spirit Himself is the initial evidence that God will complete this work on the day of resurrection. And then in, in verses 18 to 30, Paul explained how the sufferings of this present era, rather than dashing our hopes, actually serves to solidify them. Only those who suffer with Christ can hope to experience glorification with Him. The hope of Christians is unshakable because the Holy Spirit also prays perfect perpetual prayers on our behalf, prayers that are according to the will of God so that He has already promised us that He will say yes. Prayers that believers would be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. And all this is simply another way of saying that God works in all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Uh, for the good that Paul has in mind is not earthly bliss and ease and comfort. Believers groan and suffer in the present age. The good that is guaranteed to us, the good that is prayed for by the Spirit, is that believers would become more like Jesus. God has set His covenant love on His adopted people, predestined them to be like Jesus, called them effectually to come and walk the path of Jesus, made them right with God, and has begun to glorify them, and will certainly finish the work He has begun to fully glorify them. And in this context, glorification is simply another way of saying that they will be like Jesus Christ. What an incredible hope then we have as believers. 
And so this triumphant climax of chapter 8 begins with seven questions. And the first two are found in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so this is all reflecting on what he's just said. And Paul asks, what is the significance of all that God has done for us, which has just been described in the previous verses? When we look at what God has done for us, called us, justified us, glorified us, what does that tell us about our relationship with God? He is for us. This is perhaps the briefest gospel one can share. God is for us. These questions look all the way back to everything that had been said since chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul began setting forth the gospel proclaimed in the book of Romans. Because the the answer is, is a comprehensive summary of the gospel. What shall we say then to these things? God is for us. Romans 8 and 9 are are well-known chapters in the Bible about God's sovereignty and divine election. But these comforting truths are often confused with a kind of fatalism. Fatalism is a very pessimistic view of reality. Fatalism uh, is where the affairs of humans are determined and dictated by the arbitrary and capricious whims of the fates. Now, the the modern version sounds much less superstitious. In fact, it sounds quite sophisticated. It says that the affairs of humans are dictated by the blind, impersonal forces of nature, that even our behaviors are determined by impersonal forces of biology and circumstance, the, the movement of atoms and the randomness of nature. In contrast, Paul is saying that our ultimate destiny is in the hands of a holy, omnipotent, sovereign, righteous, loving, personal God, and that this is a cause for rejoicing. This is is not a pessimistic view of reality where you're stuck and things are just going to go contrary to your, your hopes and dreams, but, but that there is a loving God who knows better than you do how all things work out and is controlling that for your good. He is for us. And so predestination is, is not fatalism. It's not negative. It's not brutal. It is wonderful, something to rejoice in. Our future is in the hands of God. What could be more comforting to Christians than to know that the outcome of their lives is not in the hands of fate or nature or in their own hands, but in the hands of a benevolent God? The good news is found in the words, God is for us. This is the message of predestination. God does not leave me to impersonal fortuitous circumstances, God determines in a very real way my destiny, which is glorification. Whatever else happens to me in this world, I know that God is for me, and that knowledge is is so humbling and so comforting and brings great joy. And if, if God is for us, then it makes absolutely no difference when human beings are against us. 
the intention here is, is not that we would come to the conclusion that no one would ever be against us. That, that's not going to happen. The enemies and opponents of believers are numerous, but the point is that no opponent or enemy can ultimately harm us. God has spoken the universe into existence with a simple command. He is now our Father. He has adopted us as His children. And as a perfect Father and and as an all-powerful Father, He is more than capable and is also fully committed to taking care of us in every way. In fact, He has committed Himself to it on paper. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here Paul echoes again the crucial idea that the death of Jesus was due to the initiative of the Father, and that he, the Father, willed the death of his Son for the benefit of us all. And so in in Romans 425, God delivered Jesus up for our trespasses and raised him for our justification. And in Romans 325, God put him forward as propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so this doesn't eliminate the personal decision of Jesus, Galatians 2:20, who loved me and gave himself for me. But the emphasis here is the extent to which God has gone to ensure our ultimate victory. He has spared nothing to bring it about, not even His own Son. And so in this, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. What he's saying is that if the Father has already done the greatest thing, and the thing that was at greatest cost to Himself, sacrificing His Son to death, then the lesser thing of, of granting us all these other things, I mean, just consider how trivial everything else in the universe is, it, other than, than the life of Jesus. These, these lesser things, uh, He's granting these other things to us is guaranteed because He's already done the thing of greatest cost. Everything else is trivial compared to the sacrifice of Christ. Now, the immediate context has made it clear that God being for us does not mean that we will avoid suffering. And the fact that God will graciously give us all things cannot include a pain-free life that is characterized by health and wealth. The fact that God is for us assures us that He will accomplish His purpose for us, that nothing can stand in the way of Him conforming us to the image of His Son. And this is the very process by which we are granted assurance of God's call in our lives. We know we are indwelt by His Spirit, and with His Spirit we are granted, 2 Peter 1.3, all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is, that God does not hold back anything at all that we need to become more and more like Jesus, more and more godly. And the fact that He's making us like Jesus proves that there is now no condemnation for us. This is how Romans 8 began, right? There is, therefore, now no condemnation. Romans 8.33 states it again in another way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. No. The word elect here should not surprise us. Since believers, verse 29 and 30, are those who have been foreknown, predestined, and called. Even more striking is that the term elect is now being used of the multiracial church, where throughout the Old Testament, the the elect servant of God, who He promises to vindicate, is His people Israel. 
And this is the only place in all the writings of Paul where he uses this verb, which is translated to bring a charge. But it is used five times in Acts where Luke speaks of Paul's opponents pressing charges against him, people accusing Paul. And so the, the intent of this question here, again, is not to deny that someone would ever bring a charge or accusation against a believer. Jesus promised that we are blessed, Matthew 5, 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. One of the most frequent sins we must endure in this life at the hands of other people is that of slander. In fact, one of the names for the Satan means the slanderer. That's what the devil means. It means the slanderer. And just as Jesus was subjected to false accusations, Christians will constantly endure criticism, insults, and slander from those who are hostile to Christ Himself. And so the point is not to say that no one will ever lay a charge against God's elect, but that there is no one who can lay any charge against God's elect that will stick. Why not? Well, God has already acted as our vindicator through the death and resurrection of His Son. And if God has already sacrificed His Son to vindicate us, will He now serve as our prosecutor? Will the judge who has already acquitted us in Jesus now hear the charges against us? No, it is God who justifies. It says it in another way in verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The ultimate condemner of sinful people is God. Only God can condemn in the final sense. And just as he is the just judge of the universe and has already vindicated us that He will rightly condemn the wicked, the Bible teaches. He is just. But Paul reminds us that Christ Jesus is the one who died. He was already condemned on the cross for sin. So what possible condemnation is left for believers? Remember in verses 3 and 4 of Romans 8, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so the only one who can condemn me has already condemned my sin in the flesh of Jesus. My defense then against the condemnation of sin is not a plea of not guilty. That's not what we say as Christians. We don't say, no, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. No, our, our plea is sentence paid. The rightful penalty, condemnation and death has already been served. Christ was condemned for me. My sin was condemned by God on the cross. There is no condemnation left. The wrath has already been poured out. There's no wrath of God left for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's already been served. The sentence has been paid. And we are, just as we were told in verse 26 that the Spirit intercedes for us, we're now also told that the Son of God intercedes for us. That is, that there are three members of the Trinity, and two of them are interceding with the other on our behalf according to His design. And Jesus' location is key. 
because it, it indicates his exaltation over all hostile powers and emphasizes his complete access to the Father with whom he intercedes. Look at uh, David's poetic psalm about Jesus in Psalm 110. Oh, I'm going to read all of it just because it's short. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning to the dew of your youth, or sorry, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so now this prophecy, this psalm is fulfilled in Christ who now sits at the right hand of the Father, confirming that he has been appointed by the Father to be the judge of the world. And this isn't all good. You, you hear in the psalm, there's some corpses, and there's some shattering of peoples, and, and there's some bloodletting. This is uh, some terrible judgment. But in legal terms, Paul is saying that the person who has been given the supreme authority to charge and condemn is also our advocate. My defense attorney is also the judge. Even now, he is making intercession for us. And so, our sin has been covered from every conceivable angle. God's eternal purposes for his elect children cannot be thwarted. They are as good as done. God chooses, predestines, justifies, and glorifies. Nothing can condemn believers because Jesus died for them. And not only that, he was raised, which signified his vindication, indicating that his atoning work was completed and was effective for the justification of believers. In Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ has been condemned. And his resurrection is proof of life for his people. Not enough. Not only that, but he is the judge, jury, and executioner who is left to condemn. Romans 8.35-39 What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This final section is structured in a way that emphasizes the central statement. It begins and ends by saying what will be able to separate us, and then it has two lists inside of that, and then at the center we have this, this central statement in verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
all these things. And this cannot be separated from verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His according to his purpose. Or from verse 32, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So in all these things that he has just talked about twice, we are more than conquerors. Since God works all things for the good of believers, everything given to them turns out to be a gift for their benefit. To be sure, the ultimate benefit is not now, it is for the future age, and present suffering is not denied, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors in what? All things. But Paul includes two lists. The first list is is all of the things that a Christian might suffer. He speaks of tribulation, which in Paul's case was an ongoing and nearly ever-present reality, and was often the case also in the lives of his converts, a fact of Christian life which he mentions no fewer than 21 times in the New Testament letters. Literally, this word tribulation is applied to the suffering of Christians 21 times. And so anyone who wants to tell you that Christians will skip out on tribulation will have much to explain since that is never said ever in the Scriptures And the opposite is one of the most common statements in the Bible. To tribulation, Paul adds distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword, or execution. These are all things which might happen to us as genuine followers of Christ. Perhaps that is not the wonderful plan for your life that you thought God had. Perhaps you didn't realize that these were the present realities God is working for good and through which He is making us more than conquerors. To make it absolutely clear that he is talking about genuine believers here, Paul quotes from Psalm 44.22, part of a larger lament and cry for help. I'm going to begin in in verse 17, Psalm 44.17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So in the, in the context of chapter 44, Psalm 44, the righteous suffer despite not having abandoned God's name. In fact, it's the reason for it. They are subjected to humiliation, defeat, and mockery, which Paul affirms is the inevitable lot of Christians. The psalmist complains that God's people are suffering though they remain faithful to the covenant and calls upon God to redeem them in His unfailing love. So verse 36 is taken from this. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the language of of wholesale slaughter, which speaks of utter loss and defeat in all things physical. 
But this is the situation in which Paul declares that believers prevail completely. They experience utter victory as super conquerors. This is because even the harshest circumstances cannot dislodge believers from God's love and the incomparably greater hope of glory that awaits them. All of these troubles are listed here because these are the things that could conceivably cause believers to renounce their faith and turn from their God. Indeed, this is expected, and yet God has promised to hold them fast. None of these things, however likely, will separate God's elect from the love of Christ. See, these these aren't things that are are prone to separate us from someone. If I'm naked, if I don't have enough food, that's not going to make me separated from someone. But if a believer, if someone has as a, a faith system, a belief system, and, and then all of a sudden things go really wrong for them, well, this is actually one of the ways I've seen people lose faith in their various belief systems. I, I knew many people growing up in, in the health and wealth heresy that when they didn't receive health and wealth, well, that broke them away from their belief system. What God's saying here is that although these things are likely to break someone away from their belief system, they're going to think God has abandoned me, this will not be the case with Christians. All of these things that would be the most likely things to cause you to lose faith will not. Such is the love of Christ. Not as such is our faith, such is the love of Christ. The second list In verses 38 to 39 are supernatural rulers and cosmic powers that might conceivably separate us from the love of Christ. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not earthly trials nor supernatural powers are capable of separating us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so having noted all the more concrete afflictions like hunger and martyrdom, Paul turns now to the powers and and the cosmic dimensions of suffering. You see, ancient peoples believed that behind every earthly ruler lay the true cosmic rulers, heavenly ranks of spiritual authorities that stand behind the earthly ones. Now, the Bible has nothing to dissuade us from this notion. It it only tells us that such angelic powers are as nothing compared to the omnipotent Creator God. It is not as though Satan and God are playing tug-of-war with human souls and, and, you know, Satan's winning some and, and God's winning others. Nothing can accomplish any degree of success against the will of our sovereign Lord. Colossians 2.15 speaks of Jesus, he disarmed, or sorry, of God, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. In addition to heavenly beings, even cosmic powers such as fate and chance are declared impotent to divert the potent purposes of God in loving his people. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The emphasis is comprehensiveness. Nothing at all. Nada. Nothing in heaven. Nothing on earth. Not sin. Not human choices. Not even death. 
Why? Because God's love for us is locked up in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's already done. In our relationship with God, we are perfectly secure. We live in the palm of God's hand. He is sovereign, and nothing can touch us without His permission. And He has already declared His purposes for us. And then again, this triumph is not credited to the willpower and strength of believers, but to the love of Christ. This is the love of God, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Nothing at all can separate believers from the love of God in Christ. One theologian writes, Of course not, for Christ Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord over all spiritual powers, for He has triumphed over them in the cross. He is the Lord over life and death, for He was crucified and raised from the dead. He is the Lord over things present and things to come, for it was in Him that God elected us in love, and it is with Him that we shall enter into God's glory beyond history. In Christ Jesus, God is for us, and it is in Christ Jesus that we know Him and trust Him. Some people have tried to argue here that although nothing in creation can separate us from the love of God, people can choose to depart from God, and that then they would be separated from the love of God. Then His love would cease, and then His mercies would come to an end because such a person would be damned. This, of course, is nonsense. Because as we have seen in verses 28 to 30, the salvation of God is an unbreakable process. All those who are foreknown end up being glorified. No possibility is extended that there are some who are just justified but may not be glorified. So the category of justified is inseparable from the category of glorified. In fact, Paul's objective here is to rule out that very eventuality. By, by listing all the things that might cause believers to leave the faith, tribulation, persecution, famine, and death, these are all mentioned because they're the, the very sorts of things that would cause a person regularly to renounce their belief system. The message here is not merely that Christ loves His people as they go through such things, but that the love of Christ is so powerful that genuine believers will not forsake Him despite any trial and temptation that may come. And it is not as though Paul is saying nothing can separate us, oh, oh, but except for sin, or oh, but except for your bad choices. There's no need to mention the will of the believer specifically in this text because Paul covers everything, neither height nor depth. Nothing in all of creation can provoke believers to be removed from the love of Christ. None of these threats will succeed, for the love of Christ is stronger still. And he will see to it that what has been started will be finished. Now, if you think I may be adding anything to Paul's words here, consider the litany of benedictions. 1 Corinthians 1.8, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This isn't a one-off in Scripture. This is a common message of Scripture that God will complete the work that He's begun. Now, when considering the doctrines of assurance, knowing that we are believers, knowing that we're saved and and saved to the full, and the doctrine of perseverance, that is the doctrine that believers will be held by the love of Christ, we need to remember that the teachings of Jesus have a clear category for those, Luke 8.13, who hear the Word and receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. So there are those sorts of people. That's not what Paul's talking about here when he talks about God's elect, those who love God and are called according to His purpose. There are those who hear the Word, and and at the beginning they seem like they're genuine believers. They receive it with joy, but they have no root. And they believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. There are people like that, or those, Luke 8, 14, who hear the Word, but are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and produce no fruit. So there's two kinds of of unbelievers in the church, those with no root and those with no fruit, those who don't stay and those who don't produce the sanctification that is taking place in all who have the Holy Spirit. And so there are some who call themselves Christians but have not the Spirit and they do not walk by the Spirit and they do not set their minds on things of the Spirit because the Spirit is not in them. Such people prove by their abandoning the gospel or by their lack of gospel fruit that they are not the chosen, predestined, called, and justified. For if they were, they would also be glorified. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Jesus also claimed this regularly in John, that as the good and great shepherd of the sheep, he would not lose any of his flock. He came to do the will of the Father and would accomplish it completely and perfectly. John 6, 38 to 40 reads, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Paul does not mention human choice or living in sin as causing separation from Christ. He describes believers as those who will not continue to live in sin. When we see a person make a profession of faith and then later renounce it, we know for certain that we are not witnessing an example of a person who is truly converted and then losing his conversion. The Scripture makes it abundantly clear that this cannot happen because the perseverance of believers is not due to the intrinsic power of faith or their ability to keep themselves, but due to the grace of God who has promised that He will finish what He starts. We are also reminded here that suffering for Christ is inevitable for all true believers. 
Jesus was not kidding, John 16, when he said, in the world you will have tribulation. As Paul vividly portrays by quoting Psalm 44, God's people will suffer tribulation in a godless world. We cannot expect to avoid persecution. Indeed, we may sin to try to avoid it. We cannot expect even to avoid death. But our suffering is not in vain. It is for His sake and for His purposes. Moreover, death does not mark the end, for He has overcome the world. And because Christ has overcome, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, even as we tackle the controversial subjects of Romans, I pray that we would receive the genuine message. Not just the arguments for or against various doctrines that have been held by the church since the very beginning, but that we would understand the message of hope here. That we would now begin, by the power of your Spirit applied through your Word, we would now begin to walk in the hope and joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would grant us patient endurance through all of our struggles, that we would not turn to sin, but that we would keep turning to you, knowing that you are faithful, that you will surely accomplish everything that you have promised. Lord, we are windbags. We speak things and, and we don't come through. We make plans and we hope they'll come to pass. But you are not man. What you speak is as good as done. Oftentimes, it is already done. And so, Lord, we thank you that you can declare the end from the beginning, and you have declared good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, your elect, your chosen ones. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.